0: Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you wanna learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global And our first hour is we answer your questions on media and digital productions of all kinds. And our second hour is something that we typically wanna spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be talking about what everyone is talking about, what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank and how that will impact our industry and our economy overall. So you wanna stay tuned for our second hour. But for now, producers go ahead and submit your questions. And Jason,
1: let's head into the first question. Absolutely. Brody Hefner in New York City writes in, an Oscars broadcast innovation has QR codes linked to film craft info. However, ABC's closed captions placed above the lower thirds obscured every QR code. What's the recommended procedure for preventing this type of conflict?
2: Bill? If they are actual closed captions you have an instant solution available to you and that is that they are defeatable uh, usually from your remote control often there will be a little button marked cc and that will take them off the screen temporarily again that only happens with actual closed captions the time the kind that are specified by the americans with disabilities act and that function Uh, throughout the system consistently there's another thing that producers sometimes do called uh, open captions if that's what you're dealing with then you can't defeat them and then it's up to a broadcast designer to figure out a space to put something like the qr code in that doesn't conflict with the caption space in the bottom Um, it's just something you have to learn to deal with and i wanted to say thanks to laura thompson who also put some notes in our notes uh, so that somebody uses closed captions a lot had direct feedback into that thanks
3: Courtney, yeah, closed captions are just that. They are not rendered by the network. They are rendered by your local television device or your whatever you're uh, displaying it on. So you, many things, uh, many TVs have the choice of where to place the closed captions: top, bottom, left, right. Uh, so you could change the setting in your TV or your tuner or whatever it is you're using to display your your television. Uh, image, if you're watching a YouTube or streaming device, you know, there might be a choice in there where to place the closed captions. So, the network really doesn't have any say as to where they necessarily appear because they're rendered generally locally by the
0: display.
4: And Alex? Yeah, the, the network doesn't have this, have control, but the captionist does. <laughs> so, 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 the, uh, so, when the captionist, it was an odd placement of that. When I saw the screen gap grab of what you showed. It depends. Some TVs, as Courtney would say, will take over and put them where they are set by default or set by the user because it is a separate piece of metadata that's being delivered to the TV through the, what they call a bank. Uh, line 21 is is coming in. It's it's a it's a carrier that comes next to it. So it's just text. It's not burned in and it can just be turned on and off. It's not even an image. It's just text. And so your your TV may have a default that you set, but if you leave it off and it just says do whatever is going to come in, it actually comes down to the captioner. The captioner will say, I want it to be on these lines. We talk to captioners all the time about what line they're gonna put it on, is it gonna be center justified or, or uh, mm-hmm. typically right justified, and how that looks. What it looks like what you showed there was a right justified um, you know, caption setup, which probably was defined by a captioner um, and probably not knowing that there was going to be a QR code there. Sometimes the reason that you do that is because you expect uh, lower thirds to be somewhere else, and you're trying to stay off of them, um, so you put them over to one side um, because all the closed caption will be 32. It'll uh, be 32 characters across, and so you know that you you'll know where that ends, and you can kind of design around that. But it doesn't look like that's what happened. Well, it looks like it probably happened. Correct for a lot of things, uh, but but it and again the user can redefine that as well. But the it does start with the captioner defining those things in their system. Uh, the The QR code had the QR code was exciting. It was exciting to see it. I love QR codes, so I I, I use them a lot for work, and uh, and so I'm always interested. The problem with that QR code was a it didn't stay up long enough. And B, it was too small to comfortably shoot from, your, from wherever you were watching, unless you were right up on the TV. Like on, on a 75-inch TV, you had to be about a foot away from it, about maybe two feet away from it to get it to read. And so um, you, you need to, uh, th- th- that's, that QR code needed to be a lot bigger to make it more useful. Also, when you hit a QR code, you need to get to the content that you were produced that you were promising, immediately. Like, like you can't do anything in between or do anything else without people just never going back to it. So, I mean, I do this a lot. You cannot... Start putting logins and all kinds of other stuff in front of it. That's old thinking. So what they did is they took a new idea and then they added all their old thinking to it. So when you hit it, you had this log into this, and we're going to give you a bunch of text and all this other stuff that no one cares about. And then people will just stop using them, and then they'll never use them again. Like it, it's it's a they, they didn't it was a great idea that was horribly implemented. And Courtney. And I might point out this is a live show, so the
3: captions are being entered in real time by captionists. So uh, and it's unscripted mostly,
4: uh, so they're probably typing furiously, and so they're not it's paying too much attention to position on, on the screen. Maybe. And again, that's that's a the, you're, Courtney's absolutely right. But this all happens in pre-show. Like in pre-show, we sit there and we talk about it, and we have them run, we run them, we have the live captioner put type it in, and we see what it looks over, and it's our job to. Uh, to make a decision about that. And I'm I'm sure that in the past, putting it over right justified made sense because you don't want to put it over the captions, or I'm sorry, over the lower thirds, the captions don't want to go over the lower thirds. And so they probably, probably the standard operating procedure, and then someone added this new graphic, and it just wasn't accounted for. I think that's probably what happened.
0: Next question.
1: Uh, Daniel Goldstein from Baltimore, Maryland said, uh, given a Mac computer is a dedicated live production appliance, to get the most bang for my buck between events, would separate non-admin user accounts be sufficient to make sure non-live background tasks don't interfere with live production? Jason? Um, I would say ostensibly no. as a rule, I don't like using production machines and um, and Mac computers that that are going to be my daily drivers. Um, it's certainly going to help, but your best bet is to get rid of all background stuff and uh, more importantly, lock down your system, make no changes, make no upgrades at all um, you know once
5: you're what I don't know two weeks out from production. And Jeffrey? Well, I don't share the same ideal on the lockdown for updates. Uh, being able to, using the computer for something else, always causes extra problems because another profile gets put on. And if that, if programs come on that like, uh, like for instance, a good example is uh, Premiere Pro, uh, will try to download their stuff from the Frame IO section. So, and I had this happen on my Mac mini, uh, all of a sudden my hard drive is completely full. And if you're on one profile and you're getting your hard drives full, can't do anything else, and you're trying to find out what that's happening, but it's all happened on the other profile, next thing you know, you're, you're fighting your own system. So yeah, putting on extra profiles is not a good idea. Putting on extra software is also not a good idea.
4: And Alex? Yeah, I don't know on a Mac if, if, the, if the automatic downloads will happen when the profile is, is not uh, running. So I think that the, the profile will only ask for that footage. Uh, if it 's if it 's active um, so i, I don 't know if that's a, that's an issue uh, We do use multiple profiles on on our machines. The main thing is is that whatever you 're doing production on has to be the admin because otherwise you get into all kinds of um, what we end up with is uh, we end up with errors where it 's looking for something that it needs to have full access to and it can 't get to it so if you're if you 're going to add those extra um, those things and we do that a lot to let clients use something or to do something else but you want to be sure that those aren't very important. And in general, I would say, a, anything else you do on a computer that's supposed to be production should be very light. Um, it should be checking email and doing those kinds of things. And b, this is also why you want to have a lot of overhead. Um, you know, so you. This is why we constantly talk about having never pushing your computers more than forty to sixty percent, and really aim for forty percent capacity. So that if something updates or does something else, it's probably not impacting it. And then. The other thing is, is to leave it connected all the time because what happens is, is that you plug something, a, a computer in that you haven't connected for a long time and it, uh, it suddenly wants to do a bunch of things. <laughs> you know? and, so, and so you, you want to try to avoid those types of things and turn all auto-updates de- off, as I mentioned before. Never have anything update automatically. Never use anything like Dropbox to have it automatically go back and forth or any, all the, anything that wants to do something automatic. Be conscious of that and turn it off.
1: And Jason? So that depends on if the app or apps in question are installed for all users. This is one of those things when you're installing the app, you, you, a lot of the time you'll just click right through. But install for all users can wake up background tasks. Um, install only for this user. If you're not on that user account, then you're right, Alex, it will not update.
0: Next question. Uh,
1: Jacob Goodnight from Indianapolis, Indiana writes in, What tools do you recommend to create podcast audiogram graphics? Uh, those, by the way, are, are moving waveforms that respond to speech audio.
2: Bill? There's a lot of third-party tools to do this in a very sophisticated fashion. Um, I use a simpler one inside Final Cut. Uh, One of the audio plugins is called Channel EQ, and it has a real-time spectrum analyzer that you can set up to display waveforms in real-time. If you want something, though, that's really configurable, I would imagine that Jason and Alex will have other choices that are more sophisticated.
0: Jason?
1: Sure. Um, I I use Isotope Audio Lens, or at least I have in the past. Um, What do you use, Alex?
4: Yeah, so the one that, that I use, uh, that I, I had to build something that had to look pretty while it was while it was doing its thing. And it's called, um, and I always forget the name of it here, uh, Vithym, V-Y-T-H-M Jr. Vithym Jr. is a music visualizer VU. And it does a lot of different things. But one of them is it, it can show things that are bouncing up and down. You can put it in a circle. And what I actually did is I put it into a circular connection. I had to put it on a big theater screen and I had to, you had to listen to the music and I had to have something to listen to the music with. So I put it in a circle. But then what what happened was that its render is a little aliased. And so I took that out. So I rendered that full resolution. I took it into um, uh, into Resolve actually and then did a bunch of other effects to it. Um, so I added other bits and pieces to it to kind of give it a little bit more of a flair. And then I, then I put it out there and had a little... Particles jumping out of it and everything else, and so so that vi vim junior is the one that I've used in the past. I think descript also has something built into it, so while you're listening to it it'll it'll play those things out um, but Vim junior is probably i downloaded to do this one project. it was one of those last minute things where I had like a day to figure this out, and I downloaded like twelve apps off the app store and tried to figure out which one would look the best and that Vithm junior was the one that won in the in the heat of the moment.
0: Okay. And Headliner is one that you can use logging in and you can create some graphics with it and it does captioning as well and then it has waveform um, capabilities. And you can also do it in Canva, just depending on who is who you have handling that because um, there's just some workarounds and hacks that you've got to use for that. So those are some of the ways that you can create audiograms for podcasts. Next question.
1: Eric Billings from Washington D.C. wants to know: Does the panel have a preferred Windows app for indexing, cataloging, and searching a large drive's contents, including file properties, metadata, and the header? Thanks, Alex.
4: There's actually a lot of them <laughs> that are out there. The one that I've seen the most prevalent. When we've mostly used the Mac version of this, but uh, ArbySoft makes one that is on the PC, and that I think is the only one that I've seen in use. I don't. I can't vouch for it because I haven't used it very much, but. Uh, but that's the one that I've seen the most often when I've seen one.
1: Next question. Paul Terry Walhoose in Austin, Texas, in right, Texas writes in, what are those astounding LED walls that wrapped around the
2: stage of last night's Oscars? Assume they were LED walls? Bill? Yeah, I actually went looking for this and I remembered at the tail end, I was impressed equally with, with really the clarity and the, the beautiful job they did with their LED walls during the whole performance and the shows. And, um, I saw at the fairy tale end there was a credit for it. Unfortunately, my DVR cut off, and I even though I tried to look for it, but I think it was Senova, and I just remember there were two V's at the end. VVA was the end, so I think Senova with VVA might have been the company that did those graphic walls for the
4: Oscars. Go ahead, Alex. All I have to say is, I, as most people know, when we when someone asks about a, a presentation, uh, an event. Uh, related to awards, the next day I usually have a lot of mean words to say about them, and I have to say that this is the best event system, uh, best events I've seen. Like, and it, uh, they, you know, there's there's some weird camera moves. They did some really weird whip pans and stuff like that that were there. But outside of that, uh, I, I have to admit, I knew that this, I knew there'd be questions about the Oscars, and so I, I, you know, had the DVR on from, you know, not DVR, you know, YouTube TV, just metadata, just like record all these things and so i saw i saw little bits of i didn't see the whole thing but i saw little bits from the early red carpet um that happened starting in the morning all they abc just turned it on like we're gonna just do programming all day so they just program which i think is a great idea um i thought that they i thought abc knocked it out of the park you know like really you know this is the best coverage so they they a couple things that they did that to to go back to it and we'll talk because we're probably not gonna do a second hour on it is they they did a they took over the um, the boulevard so they had this huge street like everything you see in those red carpets was all built inside of this huge venue that was essentially built on the street um, so all the all the you know everything there and it's really nice because not only does all that velvet red velvet um, look nice it it sucks up an awful lot of audio so <laughs> a lot a lot of reflections and so so it was all there it looked really it looked really pretty the lighting was done well. What's interesting is, is that the cameras used in the very early show looked like they were super thirty five, and the rest of them went back to two thirds. It was like there was a separate crew that was playing harder at the beginning because they could experiment, and then the broadcast crew came in and said, "Well, we're using the cameras with the trucks." <laughs> you know, so so anyway, so the uh, that's what it felt like as they as they shifted to the pre the the, fir- the red carpet right before the show. Suddenly, you saw the whole background come back into focus. Um, you know, b- b- uh, that was different from what what happened before that. I was pointing this out to my daughter, to, to, talking about small sensors and big sensors anyway the um, but I thought that the LED wall that's the first time one of the first times I've seen LED walls in broadcast that I didn't see marae. I didn't see any artifacts it just looked like an image back there that's a really really nice LED wall um, probably cost a, a lot of money uh, my guess is, is it's somewhere between 0.9 and 1.2 mil um, LED wall and they had it going up and down so they could you know they could expose a cavity Things to look at there when you when you look at when you watch that show if you watch them in any of the replays, is they put a camera that was on a motorized riser right in front of the right in front of the talent. And the way, the reason I think that they did that was because it allowed them to frame. If they with a camera all the way in the back, you get a soft depth of field, but you there's just a tiny little postage stamp on the screen that you would see behind them because it's going to compress everything by putting a camera right in front of the the announcers when they're announcing something, they could do a wide angle and get that whole screen. And they had all the nominees framed in that frame every single time so that you could see all the nominees um, that were framed behind the the presenters. Then when they cut to the shot that was like at an angle of the presenters, you'd see the presenters looking out at the audience and you would see the name of the the winner and you'd see the the the, the group that they were in. I mean, that was I was impressed. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, you thought that one out. You know, like, that was a lot of planning and, and, and usually I feel like they just, it's all haphazard and again, there was a couple of things where they turned that camera because it was a PTZ, they would turn it really hard in a way that an operator can't do and so it felt, especially at a wide angle, like I, I jerked my head back. So that was the only quibble that I had was that they were taking this PTZ and swinging it um, in a way that wouldn't wasn't natural but, but outside of that um, and then I thought the graphics worked pretty well. They all had, they had a, a feel that they were creating that they put on that background. My only quibble was the text was a little thin for when you're putting over over video. <clears throat> they had a drop shadow underneath it, but it was still like a little hard to read at times. But anyway, I just want to take that. I don't think we're going to talk about it a lot more outside of that. But it was, uh, it's definitely worth uh, looking at in detail because I thought that they did a really. It's a. It was a, again, a really good uh, show. To, uh, you know, put together really well put together show.
0: So. And Courtney?
4: Yeah, I, I thought the LED balls were excellent. And I think there were
3: actually three of them. That There was one that was the entire one that went uh, cir- semi-circular that rose up and down to reveal yeah. the hole in the middle. And then there were two behind that one yeah. when it went up so that they could maintain the decor as that screen went up without having to move stuff in.
4: And, and, and also I remember it, that all the things on the sides were LEDs as well. All those things right. that looked like... Signs were LEDs as as well on on those edges. Right, yeah,
3: the the marquees that were above mm. that looked like little theater marquees. Those were all LED walls that had the the name of the uh, category coming up on each one, and that changed constantly. Even uh, there were even LED lighting in the in the audience that was coordinated with the stage
4: LED <laughs> lighting. <laughs> Not <laughs> only was it coordinated, I, I forgot about that. It it would light up, and then as it as it opened as the at the LED effect would open, it would change the LED lighting of the uh, you know uh, lights in the, front of the uh, behind each chair in the audience yeah. it was all coordinated
3: and I thought well it was beautiful the way they integrated the uh, graphic design, which would normally be done as set pieces that they would you yeah. know stage hands used to have to hustle stuff in and hustle stuff out and then they they designed the integrated graphics rather than having overlays of all the nominees mm-hmm. uh in the foreground or coming out of Chiron. They were all in the LED wall, and they were integrated into the background. They were cut out and superimposed over the background. To there, make there, it a, is, really there is some three setup. Di- Three-dimensional.
4: Yeah, there is some setup. And and one of the things that was – there was a comment on Twitter that popped up that was like, why did they – cut?" because I, I was – I actually watched it because of the VFX award. Why did they cut the VFX presenters off only to go to a comedy skit in the crowd? Like, why did they cut these guys off from saying what they wanted to say and then jump to something that was just what felt like filler? And just so you know, the reason that they did that was because they had to flip the stage. So they they, it's not that they just went to a comedy that they could do anywhere. Like the problem with all these shows is there's a lot of coordination. And so they needed to go out to the audience and tell this this relatively stupid joke um so that they could flip the stage so that they could do the next thing you know and so and the the, the vfx folks don't have the juice to just keep talking <laughs> I like that so they're, they're just as far as the academies were uh, 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 as far as the academy's concerned the vfx folks are just lucky to be there
0: that was probably the best breakdown <laughs> oh. <laughs> a very positive breakdown yeah. post-award show next question
1: Um, Steve Podmore from London is just wondering which organizations from Silicon Valley have really stunning AV and presentation capabilities. Is the AV and streaming uh, world big in the valley?
0: John?
6: The companies with the strongest capability are consultation companies like Duarte and most of the big tech companies will consult with one of these kinds of companies when they're doing big
4: presentations. And Alex? Yeah, so the the three that you see the, the most um are uh, PRG which bought VER. So PRG uh, as far as the heavy AV um stuff that goes into the back, Creative uh is another one that that is a a big supplier of a lot, of, you know, when you're going to backstage for a lot of these, um you're going to see PRG, uh you're going to see Creative, you're going to see Mountain View Staging. Uh, those are the ones we've worked with a lot. Um and so those are the ones that uh and there is a, um uh, there's one more, uh, but I can't I can't think of the name <laughs> name of it. Uh, uh, anyway, but the there's but those are the there's like three or four that that do all of the everything that you see. Um, there 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 you may have Duarte as as John mentioned. Duarte is the big that's the high end. Will build your presentation and will design help you design the presentation. Uh, but then you have a, a, a myriad of event companies that will help execute that. As well, um, Sparks is another one that manages a lot of the bits and pieces of an event. But as far as the AV goes, there's only a, um, there's only a, uh, a few that do it, probably four, four or five companies that do probably 90% of the, of the work in, in Silicon Valley.
0: Next question
1: frojan benwell in san diego california anyone tried out uh, using 1024 by 600 wave share display not included the smart pi touch pro w case kit or um something else at smarty case and he's giving smartycase.com as the reference
4: alex i took a look at this it looks really cool this is a case that you can kind of put your pi into uh, and i believe it has a touch screen on the front so you can kind of create kind of a a, a kiosk with your pi and uh, I, I bookmarked it for later research but it looks like a really cool little device
0: next question um, chirag chatia
1: in dallas texas writes in anyone using studio binder is it software to create uh, it is software to create timeline and call sheets any other alternatives that any of you like
4: alex we tried it, it it's great it looks pretty it's easy to build and then we ended up back in Google Docs. You know, so so it was, you know, one of those things that we we the problem is is there's always something with these that if you're if you're getting started, you will be happy with whatever they do. They'll get you up to speed, just follow the instructions of how they do it. As you get going, the problem you get into is that as you start building more complex events and you've done it more, you want more things than they have. And what that generally means is you fall back into Google Docs. Like most of us, I mean, almost everything you see generated is always out of Google Docs because it's ultimately flexible. Now, and what we do is we have Google Docs that are all tied to each other. So as you fill out your forms, they're filling out the call sheet, they're doing all the things that you're doing. So you can have all of that done. And again, it's all done by hand. I mean, not done by hand, but it's all like connected by hand, custom. But, but eventually what happens is you end up with somebody who wants to have more than what the, the software. And that's what we, and we tried it early on and we were really excited about it. And, and it just, um, I, we kept on hitting walls where we wanted it to do something that it didn't do, which is inherent with most of these production uh, things. If you're getting, if you're starting and it looks like it has everything you need, you may find that it's perfect um, to guide you towards how to do that. Uh, once you get going and you find a producer that kind of knows what they want, you that you tend to break them very quickly.
0: That's what I was gonna ask is like who would Studio Binder be good for? Is that someone maybe it's just people getting... getting started
4: who haven't okay. done a lot of this documentation before, you know, and it it'll work great. It'll help guide you into putting the data in that you need. Um, but it it's it's and it's not when I say get started, get started in you could be doing events for a long time, but getting started using all these doc all the documentation that they provide. Um, so you may be doing this for 10 years, but you go, Oh, I need this documentation. It may have everything you need because you haven't been doing that before. But if you, if you bring in producers that have done it before, they're going to quickly find all these things that it doesn't do that they want it to do. Copy and then that. you end up back in Google Docs because that's what everybody uses. Like, that's like 90% of, the, 90% of the industry is sitting on Google Docs.
2: Bill? The other option, if you're a Mac, I don't know whether you're Mac or PC, chair, but um, it's FileMaker Pro. It's been around for such a long time and it's really kind of uh, built into the Mac side of the industry. It's actually run by Apple. Uh, Claris Corporation, which is kind of semi-attached to them. And it's been developed for such a long time that there's a huge network of consultants out here who are willing to uh, pop in and help you do more complex things. It's really kind of a semi-relational database and it's very forms oriented and it has a lot of web links as well to things like iPhone uh, sub-apps. So it can do everything, but it's another thing to learn.
1: Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, I've looked at portable mechanical keyboards and have found the Keychron K2. My concern is the noise coming from the Apple Magic Keyboard. Any quieter recommendations?
0: Alexander?
7: Yeah, that's a tough one because t- typically with clicky keyboards, that is the trade-off. You have more keys that have further travel, but they generate more noise. I, I own an Apple keyboard, it's it's very, very quiet. I've also owned many uh, clicky keyboards and um, they have very, very specific use cases. I've never used this particular product, but I was looking at their chart and it looks like the red keys that you can um, swap them out for are, they consider quiet, but I would like to know how quiet that is. They don't seem to have any kind of decibel level or anything like
6: that. So I guess you'd have to try it out. And John? There are two aspects of a mechanical keyboard that make noise. First is the switch itself. And those red switches might be silent. Um, Black switches are typically silent. The other sound is when the key hits the base of the keyboard that makes a big thunk. You can quiet that down with rubber gaskets typically.
0: And for our producers, this is a wonderful time for you to continue to submit your questions for our panel before we get to the next hour. And you know what? Actually, you can also submit questions for our second hour now. So we have a lot of time to also vote up on your questions and see which ones make the show. Next question.
1: That's what Vincent Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington did. He said, coming back from commercials, the Oscars were doing a slow zoom towards the host, then instantly the zoom jumped. Was that a purposeful effect or was it a mistake? It seemed to be the same camera, and then he's got a link directly to, a, I would assume, a still. Courtney? Yeah,
3: I didn't take a look at the still, but uh, uh, there were a couple of remote cameras on that. One was the Skycam, a wire-based you know, flying camera the other was the pedestal that Alex spoke of earlier, which was a PTZ. That was uh, a robotic camera. It was on a robotic base and and pedestal that went up and down and it could have been just a glitch in the uh, zoom servo. Maybe it was an accident. Uh, He said there were some fast moves. I didn't notice them that much that uh, maybe they were set on reframes and the TD took the wrong camera at the wrong time when it was doing a reframe. But, uh, If it was in the middle of a long sweeping shot, I tend to believe that it was just some kind of mechanical glitch or RF glitch between the wireless
4: PTZ. And Alex? They did it every commercial. I think it was by design. (laughs) So it was, uh, I think after coming out of it, they come around, it's a jib. It's a jib shot. And it's a jib, it's uh, uh, a manned and operated camera. And it would swing down and then it would push in really fast. I think they were trying to add energy, but I will agree that it was one of the camera moves that I felt a little jarring um, in, in what they did. It felt, it, I think it gave it a little bit of a light feel um, on the camera, which I, I don't usually appreciate. <laughs> I like cameras to feel like they're big, heavy things um, and, uh, and have gravitas, you know? And so I don't think that they got that as well from that. But that, if you look at it, I think it, I, almost every commercial it came out with some big jib shot that then suddenly kind of zoomed in and then cut to the next thing.
0: Next question.
1: Alexander Knight from Vancouver, B.C., Canada, and on our panel right now, writes in, What are the economics of shows like the Oscars? If mainstream networks disappeared tomorrow, could they make it financially viable to stream exclusively on platforms like YouTube?
2: Bill. Remember the key to advertising anything, and it's attracting eyeballs to a space where your product can be featured. And there is nothing that is uh, learn these lessons and capitalize on it more than these giant events like the Oscars. Um, Even I I remember reading a story once about 15 or 20 years ago about the swag bags, and even back then, they were worth – thousands of dollars, and each one of the nominees get one of these. And all these companies are putting in premium items, things like back in those days, iPhones and things like that, because one picture in People magazine of a celebrity using that particular phone can drive tens of thousands of sales. So the entire thing is built around this idea of reputation, uh, building and product branding, and nothing
4: you see on the show is by mistake and alex uh, for the for, for the most part most of these award shows are not profitable anymore like so the the you know and they they've they've all had trouble um staying relevant i think that they i think the oscars did a pretty good job of making themselves more relevant you know this year than than other years um but they but they they're having a hard time and you will you're see, we're seeing a lot of them drop off into streaming um so they're dropping off into live streams to a variety of different you know services whether they're private services youtube um other things like that but they're falling off the broadcast list because they're just not getting the numbers that they used to get and so it's hard for for folks to give up whatever the programming was before uh i think that the oscars the grammys a couple other ones are are probably going to stay above above the line for a little while longer um could they do them on YouTube? Absolutely. Uh, will they have the same budget? That remains to be seen.
0: Courtney?
4: And remember,
3: the three top three networks are all media conglomerates that produce films. So uh, you'll notice there were a lot of commercials for Disney movies last night because, you know, Disney owns ABC. So, and you saw a whole two and a half minute or something basically commercial for 100 years of Disney or something. There was also a a tribute to Warner Brothers for 100 years. It took a long, a long time. And I think they paid, all of them paid dearly for that. And since Disney uh, was selling that advertising time, they could take a big chunk out of that. Or if there was advertising that they couldn't sell, positions that they couldn't sell in the show, they could stick their own promotional material in for any upcoming Disney or Pixar or uh, any of the many movie studios that Disney owns into those slots. So it's going to be financially advantageous for them to grab all those eyeballs for promotional material, if nothing else.
0: Alexander.
7: What I don't understand. I'm very curious about this is the uh, the underpinnings of the show. Who owns the Oscars? Who underwrites it? I'm just very curious about that.
2: Bill? Well, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is kind of the umbrella organization for the Oscars. Uh, That doesn't mean there isn't a lot of other stuff happening behind the scenes. I wanted to just sub-comment on Alex, what Alex said earlier about how early the coverage started this year you know there's not just the oscars there was a pre-show to the oscars the red carpet pre-show and then there was a pre-pre-show before that and i think for the people who are interested in these personalities and in the products they use and everything else it's turned into almost like a 12-hour streaming event as if it was um, a, a, an entertainment version of QVC, not that they're hawking products consistently, but they they do realize that people who see these people and these artists using products, that will drive a lot of behavior uh, out into the vast consumer marketplace, and there's just a lot of money being made out of.
0: Go ahead, Chris.
8: You know, I think what's really interesting about award shows is they have, evolved and morphed over the years. I can remember as a, as a kid in the 60s, my parents being so excited to, to watch the Oscars because it was a moment when they got to see celebrities not, you know, uh, uh, acting. They got to see them just in a casual fashion. Well, we get a ton of that now. So we don't care as much. You know, we... We're inundated with you know Kardashians showing themselves you know petting their dog or whatever, and so, and so it, it's a different market. The, the other thing that's interesting is that, uh, over the years, they grew, all of these award shows grew into this you know money churning machine, and without the viewership, the money churning machine starts to get gutted, and. um and I think they're struggling to find their place now. You know, we we used to love it, and and now we don't need it as much anymore because we get inundated. I think it's it's very interesting because we're we're watching we're watching a, a tipping point happening happening, and uh, who knows where it's actually going to fall.
0: And like to your point, though, Chris, it is. And Bill said this earlier: is just the whole idea of the the marketing and the. The brand options that are now like the Oscars provides that opportunity, but there's so much more money being made outside of the actual like event and the build up and why they've now extended it to this 12 hour experience so they can catch everyone else who may not be interested in that like particular um, time. Jeffrey.
8: Oh, go ahead, Chris. I was gonna say it's, it's almost like some guy on the side of the road you know pointing at his car and goes yeah but look at my car my car's cool, cool too look how nice it is look, you know and it's like uh, somebody over here has a tesla so it, it they're struggling they're struggling to find their footing
0: jeffrey
5: it is a facade and if you watch the beginning of it jimmy kimmel he made tons of jokes about it but it was very true and then the truth is this is the oscars as part of a membership package and, uh, and, and as Jimmy Kimmel said, the, the members said, hey, we wanna see every single award on this show. We don't want an abridged version. So they did every single award on the show, which is why it took three and a half hours to do that show. So this is, uh, there's a lot of money we don't see getting passed back and forth. Uh, we just see the show and either it's a great show or it's a terrible show. And then we have this conversation every year.
4: <laughs> right, Alex? yeah I think one of the hard parts too is that they you know there, there's a temptation when they write the show to play to their audience to the audience that's in the audience you know there's a big reason why in office hours I'm particularly sensitive to it there's a big reason in office hours why you're not allowed to talk about politics or religion is because it separates people and Hollywood likes to talk about politics on their award shows and it cuts it has cut their viewership in half <laughs> like, you know and they and they you know and so they and it's because the thing is is if you there's little barbs and if you're someone who does production you look at it and go oh that was a little barb it may not if you agree with it it is fine you know so for us in california we barely see that barb because it's just like oh well that's what everyone's talking about but for people in the rest of the country they don't want to they just turn the channel like they literally you say that there was like four or five little barbs that happened last night and i could hear where i grew up i could hear the clicker of everyone just going nope and they just and they're just going to turn off the channel and so this is why, if you want to know why I have such a hard rule about not talking about politics, that's why. <laughs> it's because you separate your you you cut your audience in half, and there was no re- There's no good reason for it. We're talking about movies. You don't have to you, you don't have to make those. You don't have to use those. those are those are basically you know um, unforced errors when it comes to programming. Those are in the script. It's not some side comment. You know, and and it's just a huge mistake that these companies are making of taking any side like just talk about the movies and you'd have a much larger audience but when you start mixing it up with something that doesn't belong in 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 a in a events show you end up you know basically destroying you know they've wiped out their audience and they're never going to get it back
0: next question
1: Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham Washington writes in in last night's Oscars the host Jimmy Kimmel came out with his microphone dangling what's the inside scoop what could be happening in the control room and what would be their backup plan
0: Courtney?
3: Well, I I looked at this picture. It's not really dang. It's only about an inch lower than it would normally be if it's in the clip and it's still in the middle of his chest. So it's not like it's covered up or obscured. So I don't think they had a problem with that until. And he is, as the host, is only on camera for a brief period of time. And, you know, the host really doesn't, other than the monologue at the beginning, doesn't talk for that much. I did notice that uh, the one sound problem that I did hear Uh, was when he did the the joke about the sound men, they were introducing the sound category, and he comes out with a sound rig and a fish pole and a 416 on it, and he's got headphones on. He goes, excuse me, I just need 30 seconds of room tone here, and uh, which was a great joke. But when he took his headphones off, his headphones landed on top of the lavalier, kind of muffling his sound for the rest of that introduction. And there, I think they may have been a little bit, panic but there was really nothing they could do about it since he was on the law for backups if they have a total failure of a law they have a two standing in the wings with handheld wirelesses to run out onto the stage and hand to them to the person if their body packs go dead and of course they have the robotic uh, uh, double bike that comes up from out of the floor they could erase that if he's at center stage um, all in all I thought the sound was uh, horrific on the, on the show, the background noise from all the fans, maybe it was all those pretty LED walls that were generating so much noise. But anybody, anytime anybody was not center stage and was on either side of the wings, on left or right for the introductions and were on as lobs, anytime they were quiet, you just heard this huge cacophony of fans, either from the very lights or the, the LED walls. I'm not sure what it was. They could have used some cedar
5: noise reduction, and I don't know why they didn't do any real-time noise reduction. And Jeffrey? The full context was that they did, a, uh, they did a montage at the beginning and then they did Top Gun and then Jimmy Kimmel was supposed to be jumping from uh, Tom Cruise's plane. So he ended up coming down on a parachute at the beginning. He had a harness on and that harness went across the top of there. And of course, you can't put the microphone underneath the harness because that could cause its own problems. So I think that was by design. They... I, kind of did look like when they were trying to take the harness off, they did have some problems. So it's possible it could have fallen down a little bit more, but I didn't notice any problems with the audio.
4: And Alex? Almost certain it's the harness. Like the, the harness just pulled it. And what happens is that little, that little lav comes up into a little clip. And that harness is, and anytime you have a lot of movement around there, that's the thing you worry about with labs. But with an omnidirectional lab, which is what that was, uh, you you know, it didn't matter. Like it, it was going to pick things up. If it, if it had been a uh, cardioid, it would have been a really big problem, but I don't think it really affected it. There were fans. Holy smokes. If you listen, if you look at the Lady Gaga one at the beginning, you could just hear this, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a really, uh, <laughs> it was really, really a thing. Next question.
1: Uh, James Folson writes in uh, built into macOS Ventura has freeform uh, designed like a whiteboard and brainstorming features uh, does anyone use this
6: for mind mapping? go ahead John I do not use it for mind mapping because I need mind maps to be structured and exportable uh, specifically I export into OPML format so when I'm on my Mac I use either Scapple which is by literature and latte or MindNote which is uh, across all my devices go ahead Jeffrey yeah, the biggest problem for me with
5: uh, Freeform on a Mac, I've used it on the iPad. I've used it on the Mac when I have a touch screen attached to it, and that's the big problem. Is you're trying to write a whole bunch of notes, you're trying to do a whole bunch of drawing using a mouse or a magic mouse, and that's that. My brain just doesn't work that way, so I need to have a touch screen. So if Mac is going to continue with this Freeform on Mac, I, I really hope that they they start thinking about adding a tr- touch screen to their uh, to their devices. And Jason? I love
1: Freeform on um on the iPad mini especially with a pencil, but I do not use it for mind mapping. For me it's all MindNode. I've used it from the very beginning and I think it's one of the best.
0: And Alex.
4: Yeah, I I'm definitely using Freeform <laughs> and providing there's a little feedback thing. Uh, when Apple puts out a new product, a lot of times there'll be, there's a little feedback thing and that team is really reading the feedback. And I think what you're going to find is that the evolution of Freeform happens pretty quickly. And it will be, for a Mac user, it will get to a point within the next two years that you'll have a hard time using something else because it's free and it's built into everything and it works. I mean, that's that's what Apple does well. It may not be as good as uh, Miro or other ones that I've used in the past, but um, I'm finding it overall for me, there's definitely other people that I've tried to, Partner with and say, "Oh, this doesn't work for me." For me, it works great. <laughs> so, so I, for how I think and what I do, building little graphs, all the things I used to sketch on things, I'm, I'm using it more and more. Uh, so, I I like it a lot. We were going to have an hour where we talked about mind mapping, and we're gonna we moved it for the S, S, uh, SV, S, <laughs> SVB uh, discussion, but we will come back to mind mapping in general uh, in the near future.
1: Next question. Paul Terry Walhus writes in, I set up an LG quad monitor with a USB-C cable from a Mac M1 Mini and went through half a dozen cables till I found one that worked. Obviously, there are USB-C data cables and USB-C power cables. Design flaw?
0: Courtney?
3: Yes. (laughs) The design flaw is there's too many flavors of cables. I get these really nice braided c to c cables. They don't work for uh, uh, video. So you have classes of cables that work for data only, some of them are power only, some of them are power plus video, uh, DisplayPort, many DisplayPort compatible. Some of them are are, uh, uh, Lightning, I mean, not Lightning, but um, uh, Apple's- uh, Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt, thank you, sorry. Thunderbolt just struck me in the head. Uh, Thunderbolt compatible. And you can't tell by looking at them. So you have to read the specs when you order them online, if they're display capable. Or not and if they're thunderbolt capable or not because thunderbolt data is even faster than displayport data and it's even faster than data cable and uh and power they almost always carry power but they carry also two levels of power they can carry 5 volts 9 volts 12 volts or 20 or 19 volts so
7: it's a bit of a uh, uh a minefield out
0: there go ahead alexander
7: Can you imagine the meetings they had when they were designing this spec? This is an absolute nightmare. I deal with this all the time. The only, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, but as far as I know, the the only way to guarantee it's going to do everything is to just buy the way more expensive Thunderbolt cable and just be done with it because it's, you got to start labeling your cables too. That's another thing that I've done.
0: And Jason?
1: Alexander, you're dead right. In fact, this annoyed me so much that I just bought a whole bunch of these OWC Thunderbolt 4 cables, and they actually say Thunderbolt 4 in there, and I put a red tag on them, and they are the ones that I use for everything. Is it wasteful? Maybe, but my cables always work.
4: And Alex? And there are some devices that don't work with Thunderbolt. and, and so what? It, it, there, Yep, there are actually a handful of devices that don't work with Thunderbolt, so you can't just be just Thunderbolt. Uh, it drives me a little crazy. What you're looking for, I believe, is the USB 3.2 version, you know, um, data version, I believe it's 3.2, Jason might be 3.1 Generation 2, yeah. 3.1, yeah, 3.1 Generation 2. Uh, those are the ones, if you see them that they're ready for, the, that they should be able to do everything that you want them to do. Uh, but that is the, that's the only ones that I buy because they're the only ones that I know are going to be able to do all the things that they're designed to do. Um, I find it hilarious that the EU made this the standard. <laughs> like, like, really? If you're going to pick a standard, this is the standard you're picking. <laughs> this, this this like total disaster of a, of, of a standard um, is the one that you decided you were going to make everybody use. It's kind of it's it's funny in a horrible sort of way.
0: And Jeffrey,
4: cables are built
5: uh, for L, in LG's case, cables are built for the use of the LG monitor. And most of the times, they you you just throw them in a corner, and then you forget that that's that's the cable for that that monitor or that device. I do buy uh, uh, Thunderbolt four. I also buy Thunderbolt three, and USB C in six foot and under. And anything that goes more than six foot, I actually uh, got a couple. You know, like the uh, um, the optical USB uh, cables because they work real uh, they work really well in most cases. Not all cases.
0: And for those watching and our producers, go ahead and submit your questions. And remember to vote upon your questions because those questions with the votes get the priority during the show. Next question.
1: Joseph Mueller in Guelph, Ontario, Canada writes in, Chris Fenwick, what is your experience so far with Sounddesk? And is it playing nicely with Loopback and Audio Hijack? Go ahead, Chris.
8: I would like to answer this question, please. Uh, So um, here's what I could tell you. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really glad that uh, uh, Alex mentioned it and it got got something spinning in my head. I just want to show you uh, really quickly. Uh, so here's here's the mixer that I've built. And essentially what I've done is I've brought in the apps that I want to be able to control. This is the volume to my head in my headphones here. And for so for example, up here it says, here's Unity coming in on channel six. And if I ask Mickey to talk to me, Go ahead, Mickey. Talk to me. Okay, so that's my that's my uh, intercom coming in just on my left channel because when it comes over on just one ear hole, it's easier for me to uh, to go. Oh, something's different. Um, and then another another cool trick that I did is I brought in all my browsers here. So I don't need to necessarily distinguish between Safari or Chrome or or, or whatever. And the way I do that is through um, loopback over here. Uh, my channels three, four. that's Chrome. See, that's patched in there. But if you look very carefully, there's actually like, oh, somebody's doing a Y adapter here. And that's because Safari is also patched in there. So that's kind of a cool little trick I did. And then these are basically the things that I might want to... Um, play over Zoom. And how do I decide whether or not I want to play it over Zoom? Well, what I've done is I have uh, like the aux send. So as an editor, I'm going to come here and I have a post fader feed of these two channels going out to aux one and aux one two actually is here. And I call this aux to broadcast. Uh, and that is muted. And the reason that's muted is so that I don't accidentally send it out to Zoom right now. Uh, Later, when I'm editing, I might want to do that, but right now it's muted. And because it's post fader, that aux is post fader, if I turn it down a little so I can hear my client talking over something while we're editing it, it goes down in my ears and it also goes down in theirs. Um, I also about what was it, about almost 20 minutes ago in the chat, I posted a link to somebody. And and when I got into this, I was like, oh, well, you know, clearly I'm the most unique person on the planet. Nobody else is doing this. Well, that's not true. Uh, there's a guy who did like a really fantastic tutorial on how to set up basically the same thing. And then the other thing, and I mentioned this last week, is uh, SoundLab, LoudLab, has a utility that makes it it pretty much... It pretty much bypasses uh, uh, Loopback, but I would never recommend getting rid of Loopback. But all the stuff that I did with Loopback, you could do with the Sound Loud Lab uh, thing. Oh, and then one last thing I want to show, which is actually fun. I bought a second Korg nano controller here, and this is how you set up all all of the buttons. And so without actually touching anything here... I am still showing my screen. If I grab my fader here, I am adjusting faders on my Korg Nano controller, and this is adjusting what's in my ear. So if you guys talk to me, and I take my zoom out, I just fade you out, and then I get rid of all the noise in my head. Anyway, uh, it's it's really cool. I like it a lot. Nice, John. Once Chris had this program, I had to have
5: it. And I'm still working through it. It's just amazing that this isn't built into the operating system like it is on Windows. But good app, having fun time with it.
8: Yeah, and I think it's even deeper than what the Windows mixer does. But yes.
4: And Alex. Yeah the, uh, the the funny thing about how how we work here is that I I mentioned something I'm playing with, and then Chris runs with it, and now I'm buying the Korg so that I can like
8: take advantage of what Chris figured out. And is just, that cool? You got to admit that's pretty cool to be able to just.
4: I'm excited about it when it shows up. I ordered it from Sweetwater, so I'm going to get it with, some, with a couple little pieces of candy. It's going to be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Uh,
1: Jason Bache from Albuquerque, New Mexico writes in, what is the value of an Oscar on the remainder of an actor or a director's career? Uh, 200%, 500% more money? Um, give me some sense of this.
3: Courtney? Well, I think it uh, it's more advantageous for the production company or the studio In marketing the picture that that uh, actor or director directed, because they can now put Academy Award winning movie so and so, so and so. That makes more difference in uh, drawing people out to the box office or signing up for streaming. For the actor's career, eh, it's hit or miss. There's a a huge number of actors that uh, you see them nominated all the time, as well as directors and, and all categories. They're nominated. the time and many of them have never won you'd be surprised at the number of actors out there famous famous people who've been nominated been in a lot of great movies but just the year they were nominated they were up against somebody who was a little more popular and they lost that year so they never end up getting an Academy Award that's why they end up with the Lifetime Achievement Awards or an honorary Oscar if they've had a huge career of work but never managed to win And there are a lot of actors I know that have complained that after they won an Academy Award, they couldn't get a job. So it was very difficult after that because they got all that notoriety for that one picture. But that picture may not be conducive to their next project. So it doesn't really make a difference in that case.
4: Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the hardest part is if someone is so good at what they do that they get the Academy Award, sometimes it's hard for people to think of them as anything else. And so they have a hard time, you know, um, dealing with that, that, you know, that almost stigma of that. And it's also hard for them to experiment in short films and experimental films and all kinds of other things because they have this moniker. But in general, uh, it is very valuable to the dire- to the actor's career and director's career because of exactly what Courtney said is that when you're packaging, you know, the, the, you know, we're not, the studios are banks, right? Like <laughs> they are. They are. I've got a bunch of money, and I'm gonna put. I'm gonna take a risk on something. They're an investment bank. They're gonna put some. They're gonna put something into it, and they want to get the money back. And and part of the valuation of the of the. The movie is who do you have attached to the project, and so it's this director and these actors, and they have and, and what are their bona fides, right? And so one of the bona fides is their awards. So that they, what can I put on the poster, as Courtney was mentioning, and when you do it, like five academy, you know, five Academy anomies or three Oscar winners, and what are you going to put in the trailer? What are you going to put on the poster to tell people this is great? And you know, and a lot of folks, even I, look at trailers, and if I see no names on the trailers, uh, I, I usually think, well. it's – probably low-budget film <laughs> you know, like they, had, they weren't able to attach anybody and so when you start seeing you know all like some of these directors that have gotten a really great relationship with a lot of the actors they can put up a, a, a something that they have five academy award winners or five academy award nominees that are all and definitely in the trailer definitely on the poster does that guarantee it's going to be a success no but does it does it make it more probable yes
1: next question Frojan Benwell from San Diego, California writes in, have only used Discord on iPhone and PC, not much of a hit on the CPU. Would it take a heavier hit on my Mac Mini? Heard it suggested in a recent show that it could be causing a problem.
4: Go ahead, Alex. I think the jury's still out on what's causing the problem. Um, It takes up so little of, at least on my computer, uh, that I I run it all the time on all my computers, but they're all M1s, um, so I don't know whether it's an Intel thing. I mean, Electron apps tend to be a little bit of a hog when it comes to this stuff. So it could be um, Intel chips on, a, on an M1. It doesn't even show up in the top 20 list of, of usage.
2: Bill? Yeah, I think it might have been my circumstances. And I, I was, I'm i thinking still in the back of my head, it may have something to do with Discord uh, that I'm having some trouble with audio lag. But There is no causal relationship that has been established between those two, and I wanna be really clear. The fact that we think that something might be a factor doesn't mean that it is. I could have been entirely wrong in that presumption, and I'm still trying days with Discord off and days with Discord on to see if I can establish an actual causal relationship that that has anything to do with what I'm experiencing. Could be something entirely different. I just wanna be fair to all the companies involved. It's hard to track these things down sometimes.
0: Go ahead, Jason.
2: This
1: comes back to one of my favorite Latin fallacies of all time, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. That means after, therefore, because, just because something comes after another thing doesn't mean that that thing caused the other thing.
0: Next question.
1: Uh, Douglas Carmichael writes in, has anyone on the panel had experience with the Logitech MX range of keyboards? How durable and quiet are they?
9: Harshid. Yes, Douglas. Uh, I actually do use a MX mechanical keyboard. Uh, they have three colors, as we were talking colors. Um, holding mine up here, uh, you have the tactical, uh, the tactile, which is the blue, I believe, or the brown. Excuse me. The clicky is the blue, and uh, the red is the. Uh, so when it comes to the quietness of this. The tactile just bounces back, the ortholinear is is, is quiet as well, but the keys press down. So ortholinear is similar to what you might feel in a laptop, where your keys press downwards, where the tactile keyboard, um, as what they describe it as with the brown switch, it clicks back up. The clicky switch makes more noises uh, as your old IBM keyboard that you might be uh, used to hearing. So the clicky keyboard that they uh, serve is um, one version but the better versions in the MX mechanical I would say would be the brown or the red Uh, as far as these this one that I have right here I've uh, flung off the keycap once or twice on the arrow keys Uh, just by holding it uh, incorrectly. But other than that, they just slap right back on. And I would also recommend you look into silver, uh, Kale Silver Switches if you're looking at the Keychron or anything else. They are the lightest and quietest switches. And if you want to get really engineering, technical, you could get the switches and grease them up and put lubricant and all that kind kind of fun stuff. But it's a Mm -hmm. DIY box that you'll, you'll get all that with, so. Jason?
1: I use and like the ergonomic Logitech MX range of keyboards, Um, but my very favorite to this day is the ThinkPad keyboard, and I managed to find a Bluetooth version of that keyboard. It's super thin, it's super light, and it has a little USB dongle so that if you don't want to use it for Bluetooth, you want to just plug it straight in, it works beautifully. And the benefit here, if you just need to get it to work to plug in a mouse, yep, it also has a mouse too. I love it.
0: Go ahead, Alex. Alex.
4: I ordered the Logitech MX, tested it, and uh, dropped it off at Whole Foods to go back to Amazon. (laughs) So so it's so it is a it's a great keyboard. Here's the problem that I had with it uh, is uh, that uh, I didn't just drop it off at Whole Foods. You know, it's not like sitting in the avocado you know bags. I I I actually took it. There's a place I can take it there. uh, If you're looking, don't go looking for it in the avocados. The the uh, The office hours scavenger (laughs) hunt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where's Alex going to leave him? electronics. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, the problem with it was, is that it wasn't quiet enough. I couldn't get it to be quiet enough to, 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 I was trying to find a quiet, I'm trying to find an invisibly quiet keyboard for taking notes while in meetings. And I haven't been able to find and talk during the show and stuff like that. Haven't been able to find that. That wasn't it. And because it doesn't have a USB in to plug in my mouse, it now takes up, I now have to cl- plug my trackball or mouse into as a separate input and that became problematic in my KVM and everything else. So the mixture of those turned out to be just made it not usable
10: in my environment. And Nigel. I had problems with the keyboard as well, but I love the MX mouse. So the MX mouse, which someone recommended, I think is is an incredible device and better than anything else I've used. But the keyboards, uh, I really struggled with, and I, I, I think the search for the uh, silent keyboard, is a bit like the search for a dodo. I think uh, I think people have heard of them, people <laughs> I mean, know they exist, but you'll never find one. But
0: it's where, where are they? <laughs> Next
1: question. James Haldane in Vancouver, Canada writes in, has anyone used Canon's rcip 100 PTZ controller? Does it work well? The screen seems small and I prefer tactile buttons.
4: Alex? It looks really good. We haven't used this one specifically, but I have used a fair number of PTZ controllers with touchscreens and they work really well because they, they can be modal. You can do a lot more with them. When you create a tactile, the advantage of it is, is that you can now just not look down and know where you're at. and And, and I get the value of that. But when you create a touchscreen, you now can redefine what that is, and you can have pages of things that you can do with those cameras that you can't do if you, if you tie yourself down to a tactile screen. So um, the, I felt like looking at it, the mixture of tactile and uh, screen real estate, looks very much like the telemetrics um, system, which we use, we've used a lot. So I think it's, I, I, it looks pretty good, uh, but I haven't gotten to use it yet.
1: Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, in 2020, the Emmys were broadcast from the Staples Center, partially because of the arena's capacity to support hundreds of feeds going in and out of it. Office Hours 2.5 itself is such a feat each day, but how do you keep track
0: of that many feeds? Go ahead, Courtney.
3: Routing switchers. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think the reason they they held the Emmys at Staples is because there are so many different categories in television broadcasting. Because each little, you know, it's a drama show or a musical comedy show, or you know, best actor in this kind of show or that kind of show or this half hour drama, uh, half hour sitcom, half hour. You know, there's so many categories that they have to just to accommodate all the nominees and their plus ones. You need something in an arena size just to accommodate the uh, the nominees. So that's probably why they do it in a bigger venue than something like where the Academy Awards are held, the Kodak Theater, because it it just can't accommodate that many people and have them in a close enough to the stage that you can get them to the stage if they win in you know less than thirty minutes. So uh, I don't think it really has anything to do with the feeds. They use the big sports trucks a lot of times for these events that uh, are all set up for uh, plugging into an arena and accommodating all the uh, hundreds of cameras that they have, or at least 20 or 30 cameras, maybe 40 cameras that are manned at a lot of PTZs. You know? So I don't think that's necessarily consideration. Office hours, now Alex is gonna have to address that.
4: Go ahead, Alex. What we do and what they do are very different. <laughs> like, like, so I just want to make sure we're all clear. The sta- I, I have a fair bit of experience with most of the facilities in, in LA, and the sta- Staples is a much easier to get a lot of bandwidth out of. So there's a lot of dedicated fiber that goes in there because of the sports arena. So there's a lot less events that happen in the Kodak Theater than the, than the and in the, in TCL or uh man's Chinese theater, but we call it TCL because it's um it's owned by TCL. <laughs> so so anyway, so uh so TCL and, and um and Kodak uh, have much more limited capacity to get things in and out of them than Staples does. So if you it, it is true that um the Staples Center and the Microsoft area there next to it and everything else has an enormous amount of fiber coin into it. And, and so that if you need to build individual feeds, it tends to be easier. They literally pull a truck up or not a truck but a trailer up to the up outside of there, and they can run the feeds into there, and then spread them out into again hundreds of outputs. Um, typically, by a company called the Switch, um, does a lot of that to ma- to manage those those outputs um, to many many different outlets that that may want to use those. And it is not impossible to do in. Kodak with some warning, uh, but it is much more difficult. <laughs> like there's a lot less uh, capability in um, that part of uh, the uh, Hollywood than there is at Staples. So um, it is it is a constant challenge. We have um, I'm doing an event TCL like tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it's it's a challenge. You know, so for us to kind of sort that out.
0: All right. We are at the top of the hour and getting ready and switching over to our conversation around Silicon Valley Bank and the status of the financial industry in in the U.S. and actually globally as we've heard some news breaking news this morning of HSBC UK buying the or taking over the assets of Silicon Valley Bank in the UK and so we're just going to have an open discussion about how this has how this is and will impact the live stream the media production community but also small businesses because mondays that's our conversations typically around business and marketing and i know once the news hit the fan last week i'm a part of the founder startup community Um, i've been in jp morgan's chase's um, founder catalyst program and those are those kind of programs that help startups get ready to actually go for funding and investment and that uh, all founders that was the news last year of how it would impact many of those. Uh, And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what's taking place, Silicon Valley Bank, most of their deposits and their clients and customers were were startups, were um, VCs and, and angel funds. And once they were at a loss or recognize that they had a lot of their, um, a lot of their funds were tied up in bonds that they needed to make some moves quickly, especially with the the way that the interest rate was going And many customers, once they heard the news that Silicon Valley Bank was in trouble, that and this is a really high, high level (laughs) explanation, and as we'll go through the rest of the panel, we'll give more context around that. But once the word got out that they were in trouble, people started to pull and pull with it. And Alex, you want to jump
4: in? (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> let's, let's talk about a little bit a little bit of background here. Um you know, the reason that, that I and I asked Liberty for permission for us to move this uh to, to to this morning as opposed to what we were going to talk about, mostly because I thought that, you know, when there's a lot of adrenaline, when then things are moving is a good time to learn. You know, it's a good time for us to look and learn and, and figure things out and, and and work through those and and so, um, I, I think that it's really uh, it's really useful for us to pay attention to it. Now, you may say, well, I'm a AV, you know, I do AV or I do events. Well, this may affect your clients, your, um, you know, it, it affects your clients. It affects, you know, we have to pay attention to the rest of the world and we have to pay attention to these financial systems because, you know, that suddenly there's a lot of people that almost lost their entire livelihood and all their employees and everything happened in a couple of days. And these are things that people were talking about for a while. Like, like so this is not something that just happened in a day. This is, people were talking about, oh, there's a, you know, there, SVB was coming up as this is a risk factor. And let, let's explain a little bit about that is that the reason you go to SVB, and I'm I'm in the beginning of a, a funding round. And so I was talking to an advisor and they're like, you're gonna take the money and they're gonna put it in SVB. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if they'll say that today, but they said that a month ago, you know, and and the, uh, and the reason for that is that it, it has all the special specialized instruments for startups. So what they did is they specialized instead of being a bank that does everything for everyone, they really specialized in in all over the world providing um, you know the resources and the tools. Like I, my company uh, when I had one was uh, in Bank of America, and the reason that that was there is because I was terrified of small banks. <laughs> I was like terrified of like a small bank doing something weird. The problem with Bank of America as a as a small company is you are like a little gnat on their back. And they don't, you know, if you go under, it doesn't even show up on there. It doesn't even show up as noise. And so, they just don't care about you that much. Um, and so, when you're on a, in a large bank, you have a hard time getting any attention. So, you go to a small bank that specializes in what you do. And also, regional banks do really, really well because they specialize in their region or in a specific vertical. The problem with that vertical of doing that is that is that you now have a monoculture. You have a lot of people doing the same thing in your bank. And, and and that means that if something ru- if something goes bad, it goes bad very quickly because it's not like, well, you had some farming assets and you had some other people and some people had brick and mortar. Everybody in SVB or almost everybody in SVB were all startups. And that has two problems. One of those, one of those problems is, is that they they have a very specific way of using the money. Another problem is, is that they are very tech savvy, which means they can accelerate movement very, very fast because they're all they're all in the tech sector. And so they can do things very quickly. So the issue is, is that um, you know we have zero interest because we made a bunch of bad decisions about housing thirty years ago. <laughs> it all what happened. last week started thirty years ago. We made it. We wanted to get more people into housing, so we relaxed the rules, and then, then and then people took advantage of that, and they started getting high profits. And then it turned out all those assets were worthless, and that was in two thousand eight. It all dropped, and so then we didn't have interest rates for. 15 years, like basically we dropped to zero and then just stayed there. Now, what that created was that warps the market because it means that you have to buy bonds. Um, and the reason you buy bonds is because there's no yield on the end, in- there's no interest rate to, to, to get a yield out of it. And of course, banks still wanna make money, that's why they're banks. And so, they, um, so they, you know, they can't pay their employees, they can't pay their investors if they're not making some kind of margin. And essentially when you give them money, you are loaning them money right? When, if you're a depositor, when you borrow money from the bank, you're borrowing it. When you're a depositor, you're lending money to the bank. You're saying, I am a, and it's a, it's a horrible lend. You are lending money to the, you're lending them a, a liability that you can take back anytime you want. Think about uh, the bank just being able to come to your loan, like you borrow $100,000 from the bank and the bank can come anytime they want and just say, I'd like to have that money back. That's what, Depositing does to, to a bank is that I can, I'm going to give, I'm going to lend you money as a bank, and then you're going to give me back. I'll, I can ask for it anytime I want. So then what the bank has to do is it's a little bit of a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> they have to figure out how to make money as long as no, not everybody asks for it all back. They have to put it into assets. They have to make that money work for them so that they're taking the loan that you gave them as a deposit and turning it into cap into profit. And so that's that's their game. You know, that's their, that's their, their jam. And so what they do is they start to figure out they want to put it in safe assets because they – regulatory reasons and so on and so forth. But there aren't a lot of safe assets to put it in. And so you can put it into short-term treasuries or long-term treasuries, and the long-term treasuries will make you more money. You know, so the thing is, is that so what you want to do is you put those, those, that money, but what you're hedging against is the fact that the interest rates won't go up. Because the long-term treasuries are valuable as long as the interest rates, r- the interest rate return is lower than the long-term treasuries. If that flips and the interest rates are more than the long-term treasury, then the long-term the 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 money coming back from that long-term treasury becomes uh, worthless, or not worthless, but it becomes it becomes what it is, but it becomes less valuable because there's a lot of other ways to make more money, other banks and other. Because what happens is you buy that treasury, you don't keep it you buy that treasury from you buy a, a 10-year treasury from the from the federal government or, and then what happens is is that you start buying and selling it you know and people are making calculations on what it's going to be worth in the future and they're making and they're they're putting that together so what happens is they bought a bunch of long-term treasuries why did they buy those long-term treasuries because that made more money than short-term treasuries the problem is is you you have to let them you you have to let them mature you know um to to the end and so the, what happened is is that th- then if you bought short-term treasuries you are able to make, you're able to, you're making a smaller bet that in, that this will happen. Now, the other thing that happened in, in the middle of all of these things is that the, is that we have incredible inflation because we dumped huge amounts of money into the economy. So, during COVID, we just dumped, we printed money like a banana republic, we pushed it all into the, the economy to keep it going, it then overheated, and then we, and then the only way, the only tool we have left to fix that problem that we created by dumping money into the economy was to increase interest rates, to try to slow the, slow the, it's basically like curving back after you've gone a little too far over one side. And that started to flip this bank. It could flip other banks. This isn't the only bank that has this. And and basically talking to folks that that I know that are in banks, <laughs> that they were like, this, someone should have seen it. <laughs> like this is not, like they had in a huge amount of assets that were sitting in long-term treasuries. Um, and a, 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 you have to have the liquidity of your of your backing be very close or have the ability to turn it back over if someone asks for it. So, so the issue is they got themselves into a bind. They had a way out of the bind, which is to raise more money and take a loss on it. The problem is, is that once they took the loss, you know, they said, well, you know, we, we made a bad choice. We're now gonna raise some more money to fix that choice the problem is is that people startups especially are panicky because they don't you know a lot of them don't have any revenue so they don't have revenue to make up for it they are startups you know and if they have revenue they have a lot of money in there and they need to pay bills they need to do things and they and and because our our guarantee is less than a quarter is a quarter million dollars or less the if you have more money than that into it you are now at huge risk of your company going under and it only takes a minute i mean like Cash flow is everything, right? So, so if you, if you uh, if you run out of cash flow for a couple of weeks, you're gone. You know, and so and so the thing is you can't suddenly can't pay your bills. You can't can't do all you can't, you know, you have it's a it's a huge hit. So what did they do when they found out that there was any whiff of stuff? They pulled money out. And everybody I know would have done the same thing. <laughs> like, you know, like everybody I know in a small business would have been like, if they had more than a quarter million dollars, they'd be like, I'm pulling that out of there. We'll see how this goes. And the funny thing is a lot of people are talking about the antiquated system over the weekend if it was antiquated, this would have never happened. It was that it was a modern it's a very modern bank with a very modern banking um infrastructure and people were able to move what's incredible is is when you think about it in one day people moved forty one billion dollars and it didn't become a problem until they got to forty two you know, so, so it was like it, it was. They did an amazing feat, is to be able to cover forty one billion dollars, and then they hit the wall. You know, and and so, uh, so I think that it's a, you know, and 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 you know what's going to happen, of course, is that you know, and, and the question we really have too, and other people are going to talk about it after me, but the question uh, that we we really have here is, should we say that you have up to quarter million dollar of guaranteed assets by the FDIC or insured assets? Or should we just say we're going to always insure it because that's what we do every time? There's a problem is we just go well we're actually going to I know we said two quarter million but we're just going to pay we're just going to cover it, um and so so anyway those are the those are that kind of hopefully gets people up to speed about what you know they got themselves into a bind talking to folks about it that are in the industry they're like they should have seen this the regular they shouldn't have done it and the regulators should have definitely seen it and you know that you know this is not this was a it you didn't need more rules um in regulation. A regulator should have absolutely seen that they had gotten them they, they weren 't stress testing what was going to happen if intre- what they weren 't doing is running stress tests against interest rate increases um, but there 's a whole bunch of it's the reason I wanted to talk about it today was that there 's just a fascinating number of variables that all kind of congealed into this and of course they in some ways they had to cover this because the problem is you don 't want a bunch of regional banks to go under because if if people lose lose um, confidence in regional banks and smaller banks, they all go to b of a and and, uh, and you know, everybody else, and, the pro- and then you lose those regional banks, and then those banks become even more too, too large to fail because more, more things are getting central. You heard it over over the weekend, I watched a lot of news shows. They kept on saying, we don't wanna see more centralization. We don't wanna see more centralization. We don't wanna see more of that centralization. They're terrified of more people going to the bigger banks and not using these regional banks. And so, they had to figure out a way to solve that.
6: Okay, John. Uh, yeah, I think I'd slightly disagree with Alex that it wouldn't happen in an antiquated system because it did happen in 1929. But um, regardless, I'm going to zoom out a little bit. And and the act of corporate finance is the act of pricing risk. When something's riskier, it either costs less money or you get a greater reward on it. And the prob- one of the foundational problems to this particular crisis is treasury bills started being more valuable. You got a higher return with less risk than some of those bonds and sorts of things. And so the bank itself... Its own assets were not valuable assets to be able to sell to get money because banks aren't required to hold 100% of deposits on hand. The Fed requires banks to hold a certain percentage of their money on hand, and that's usually enough for people to withdraw their money. In this case, because people panicked, they all started pulling their money out, the bank ran out of money, the bank didn't have a way to make that money back to give to its creditors, and so that created a panic. And normally the Fed does a couple different things. When they set the deposit amount banks are supposed to keep, they also set the, the and they use that as a way to set interest rates. The other way they do it is by buying and selling a treasury bills. And when the bank or when the Fed, excuse me, sells treasury bills, it puts cash into the market, which lowers the price of cash and lowers interest rates. When they buy it back, it reduces the total stock of cash out in the market and that in- increases interest rates. So the Fed was increasing interest rates While in order to to help um, react against what it had done during the pandemic, during the pandemic, it lowered interest rates to help keep money in the system to keep the system going. And then that caused inflation because the price of money went down, it was less valuable. The way you combat inflation is you raise interest rates. So the Fed started doing that. That caused the treasury bills to be worth more money than those bonds that Alex was talking about. So that created a very risky situation for this bank. And then the second part is the FDIC. The FDIC is an insurance company. And what insurance companies do is they distribute distribute risk across a large group of organizations. They take a premium and assume that they're not going to have to they're going to make money on the premiums or spread it out over smaller risk pools or larger risk pools, excuse me. And the reason why it's so important that the Fed stepped in today and said, we're going to back all this money, even though it's beyond what we normally insure, is because if those regional banks start, if other if this bank crisis caused other people to panic and pull out of their banks, then the other banks don't have enough money to pay off their creditors, which causes a greater panic and it becomes a virus that spreads across the banking system. And then the FDIC has to pay everyone's insurance claims instead of a few people paying more insurance claims. So the purpose of saying, we're going to go ahead and insure all of the money in these two banks that the FDIC did, it was to prevent the spread of the panic to make sure they didn't have to pay out claims on all the other banking systems.
0: Go ahead, Chris.
8: Um, I think that if more people really understood how banks work, they'd be a lot more uh, reticent about putting their money in banks. Um, but the one thing I want to say about uh, uh, what we do, some of us, I know I do, I can only, I guess I should only speak for myself, is um, I, I help our company, we help companies communicate. And in times of crisis, they need to communicate. And in times of, you know, jubilee, they need to communicate or they choose to communicate. Um, And so I I can't tell you, well, I can't tell you. Actually, uh, three, possibly four, three or four different times in my career, I have been involved in live satellite, not pre-internet, before Al Gore invented the internet, uh, satellite firings, where via satellite... Uh, I worked for a company once I was switching the show where the guy laid off like 80% of his worldwide workforce in, in one broadcast. And I remember looking at the director that day and, and I was just like, wow, at least we still have a job. And, and I'll say crass, yes. Um, Fenwick. Uh, it's um, w- when you're communicating Everybody has a message to get out and, when you, and for, for what we do and we help them do that, it is a bit of a job security. Think of, think of the difference between, um, uh, I don't know Levi, the, Levi's, the, the, what was his first name, Bob Levi, uh, um, making jeans and selling jeans and say uh, uh, gold mining equipment to the, the gold miners in 1849 in California. Good business to be in because it was at it was the entry level thing. If you were selling opera tickets in, you know, conquered California 150 years ago, not as big of an audience, right? So w- when you're when you're at that kind of ground level, there is a bit more s- stability in the work that you're doing. And uh, Liberty, you had mentioned earlier. You know, is this going to affect our business? It might if your business is selling opera tickets, you know, uh, w- when people don't need that, it, it might be harder. If you're at the ground level, you know, like what I do, helping people communicate, it's it's a pretty good business to be in.
0: Go ahead, Nigel.
10: Yeah, so I think it's important to understand how difficult this was for a bunch of small companies. And Alex touched on it, and you saw the phrase used uh over the weekend, an extinction event that for uh, some of the Silicon Valley startups, had something not happened, they would have ended. And that would have cost livelihoods and jobs and things like that. So the, the word extinction, I think is is quite an aggressive word, but I think it's an interesting word for a lot of small startups who uh, may have been told to put their money in Silicon Valley Bank by uh, the people who provided them or who just trusted them. So I I don't want to underestimate the importance to the small businesses of what's going on there. I also would recommend be careful of believing one simplistic reason for this. You're seeing a lot in the press of it was A or it was B. This was a series of uh, issues. Uh, It was a complete failure of the management team Uh, The one thing about the bailout, it is a bailout, I'll discuss that in a second, that I don't like is that I think it clears the management team. And I hope that there's a level of accountability and we should hold ourselves and the people we work with accountable. Um, From a business, you know, for our business, we have, you know, a certain amount of cash we have to keep to pay bills to, to cover our loans and stuff. This raises a lot of interesting questions. Because you could say, well, you know, if FDIC is 250K, then I'm going to distribute all my money into different banks at 250K each. Well, we keep between 7 and $10 million of cash um, at any one time. And uh, that's just not a practical answer. And there are bank charges and there are all sorts of things. So there really is a risk management thing. And you need to make sure if you are a company of any size that you are using a professional risk management. I don't know that Silicon Valley Bank's risk management would be a group I would use They didn't have one. Someone left. right they, they, Well they, a year ago. <laughs> okay, well, that that might be part of the issue, but I think for your business, however big however small, this is a subject you should talk to your accountant about. That this is something you do have to think about, and uh, it might be just one of those things you should, you don't need to, but you really do. I want to make three other quick points, and'll uh, I'll stop if I'm touching what uh, Chris would call the third rail. I think there are there are a bunch of other things around here. Somebody is going to pay. FDIC is an insurance company. As we use our banks, we pay the premium that they pay off. So the the idea that there's nobody going to pay for this, there's no magic money coming. So I think we should be careful of of, of believing uh, that. That second of all, um, uh, there's a whole bunch of questions about crypto here that are going to come up. Then uh, both Silicon Valley and Standard and other people are in the middle of a bunch of crypto stuff. And this will have a knock-on on crypto. And there's a conversation about why the Fed and other people don't want crypto s- to succeed. Or if they do or they don't, that might be interesting. And finally, Alex and I had a, a sort of tweet conversation over the last couple of days. Um, I believe that uh, Silicon Valley is not the future of technology, but the past. And I think this will start to accelerate, and we'll start to see a diversification both uh, technically and regionally and economically away from California.
0: I have very much the same sentiments as you, Nigel. And I started to say that at the beginning um, of the hour of just the impact that this has had, this has had on the startup community. And it's not just in the Valley. This is across the U.S., especially here in Atlanta, the number of organizations that have been constructed to help startups, to help founders, their women, the number of women who get funding, the number of underserved represent underserved businesses that get funding. And Silicon Valley Bank was one of the top leading banks that helped to fund and help to fund these programs and to help these small businesses and help these startups. So to see, you know, something like this happen to what are they, they were the 16th largest bank in the US, the impact that that has to, to funding like small businesses are, are, uh, the, the largest group of, of business creators and funding people who for job, for job creation, for innovation. So just really seeing how that has been impacted. And I know that there was um, there was someone from Etsy, you know Etsy had their funds tied into that. So now you have Etsy sellers who are having issues with being able to pay out or for their operations. So just really want to underline. I know that we are having this conversation of the FDIC, and the larger impact and how that trickles down, but then the, the trickle up effect that is happening for small businesses. And um, I think it was um, John who mentioned the fear factor now and how that's going to play into what happens in the future. And then also hopefully we'll get into this conversation a little bit later of, so what what are the the products that need to be created because that doesn't mean we stop funding startups we don't stop the the money and the cash flow to help the innovation and to help job creation like what happens there which that part of the conversation is highly impacts our community because when we have these conversations on a monday people are saying you know i am currently working here or i'm a freelancer and i want to step out and do and start my own business these this is why this conversation is happening today and why it matters for our community because in order to scale, you need funds to do that. So, um, going on to Jason.
1: Um, I want to zoom out a little bit. I I wrote a thesis um, as part of a a master's degree a long time ago on this, and my my knowledge specifically to this case is um, not great, but I I want to point out a more of a, a larger kind of a pattern here. What happened, you know, for better or for worse is not necessarily wrong. What's different about this is that it is a bellwether. It, you know, the speed with which money can move can cause this tail ripple effect that, you know, since 2003 Reg CC Article 2 is the federal regulation by which banks are allowed to hold your deposits for how long under which circumstances and they they have been turned immediately um from paper checks to electronic checks legally and they are identical once they're scanned into an atm or what have you after that there is a single point of clearance now from every federal reserve bank so um routing number first two digits are the name of the are the number of the federal reserve bank that doesn't matter anymore um it is Extremely fast. So fast, in fact, that the bank will give you money, and sometimes if there's a stop payment of the check, yank it right back. So the, the issue that I'm trying to point out here is that the speed with which an extremely connected group of very intelligent people, like you know, Silicon Valley Bank companies, um, can pull the money is is kind of an advanced notice of what I think will happen, you know, to various degrees. Over the course of you know any sort of economic problem um, as time moves on and it's not just going to be California
4: go ahead Alex yeah a couple of things uh, one is is that there was no additional regulation required for this to be seen by regulators and told that they needed to do something different like it, it wasn't a, a lack of regulation that caused this problem it was a lack of oversight by the the regulators that were already there um, you know and so the thing is is this this was a stress case that they could have very quickly seen. Um, had they run run the stress case of what happens when you change the interest rates, they would have known exactly what was going to happen here. Um, and so, the thing is, is it's not – it is it is not a – you don't need to write new laws to fix this. They just need to pay a lot more attention to the banks. Um, you know, that's what they – that's that, that's their job. The reason this is different from 1929 is because that was a consumer run on the banks um, and it was able to be done in many, many by many, many people all at one time, and that's possible. And
1: the FDIC didn't exist.
4: FDIC. The, the reason that that insurance is so important is because it reduces the chance of consumer runs, because most consumers don't have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. <laughs> so, so when they look at it, they go, "Oh, I'm covered. I don't have to worry about this right now." And so, you reduce the number of people that can, you know, that can do that. I think what you're probably going to also see is. Breaks on, you know, uh, you're probably going to see breaks on a bank being able to uh, run. It will probably get stopped much faster. So it'll say, "Well, you can't move a bank can't move more than X amount of dollars per day." is probably something that's going to sh- start showing up as a as a as a discussion point. You're definitely not going to be able to have long term treasuries <laughs> that that are at the level that that were being used in the past. Uh, of course, those are out of fashion right now because of the high interest rates as well. So, so, I think it's going to be interesting, but I don't think that, I think that it's a mistake to think that, I think a lot of people are talking about regulation and whether it was pulled back or had it, it, it just didn't, that wasn't the issue. Now, most of the time it isn't, it's someone not, it's people that, you know, it was a failure by the bank, but it's also failure by the people that are supposed to be uh, overseeing what they're doing. John? Yeah, and I just want to point out the seeds for this
6: were sown much longer ago than any given administration. Our interest rates have been close to zero for over 20 years. And that um, in order to help with the economy grow at large, we added risk to our
4: system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is is decades old, like the problems are decades old. And it just happens to it just pinched um, at a second, you know, in a second there. Um, and and it, it is something that uh, I think that we have to pay a lot of attention to, um, as as consumer. I, I mean, as consumers of the banks, which we have. I mean, you kind of have to be <laughs> to some degree. Uh, that you that we have to pay attention to that one thing that the the people who did get their money out, just a note, probably had an account somewhere else, <laughs> because trying to set the account up in a day is just something for us to learn as folks that are, um, you know, as folks who uh, do this. I know we had a. You no, know, the problem you get into is you take loans out from a bank or you have a, a, a they get very sensitive about any significant amount of cash in another bank account but it doesn't mean you can't have another bank account opened it just means that you can't like if you start putting a bunch of money into it and you have a loan with another bank they they get tweaky about that so you have to be kind of careful of that but the um but the but having some other places to go diversifying where your cash is makes a ton of sense to not have it all in one place and even the even the companies that you see there were there were definitely some startups that lost potentially we're going to lose everything a lot of the companies that were uninsured this was one of the banks that they had money in you know so that you saw that well they had 150 million dollars 150 million dollars in there that was uninsured well they also had 2 billion dollars somewhere else and so so it's not it doesn't necessarily mean that that you know that all of that was was something that they they had already done some of that diversification
0: Go ahead, Jason.
1: Alex, I, I didn't um, discuss my point or get it across very well. If what you thought I said had to do with, oh, it was a lack of regulation, no, no, what I'm I, saying I is I was, just, I, was I was,
4: I was responding to the, the event chat, which I was paying attention to. <laughs> so, uh, so, copy anyways, that. All, yeah, Go yeah, ahead, yeah. Fenwick.
8: Okay. Um, Jason, you threw me. You threw me. <laughs> I uh, yield my. I yield my time. I will say this uh, in summary of what I was about to say: it was going to be brilliant. It was going to be concise, and at the end there was going to be a little chuckle. But I, now I can't remember what it was.
0: We got we got All the right, chuckle part. So thank exactly. you, just a reminder to our producers. I see there's great questions happening in the chat. Go ahead. This is your opportunity to and, post them into the panel. So in the note of it. Question.
4: It is a sensitive conversation, we wanna talk about it, but we wanna try to stay out of the politics of it. So if you start getting in too deep into anything of it, was it this person's fault or that person's fault, you'll probably get the question kicked back. Um, We're trying to stay out of that and just talk about like the overall math of what actually happened.
0: All right, Jason.
8: Let's get into these questions. I, 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 hold on. Wait. 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 I, I remembered what it was. Better
4: be good. You know, you, it, the, the build-up has been huge. Now, right.
8: listen. Listen. First of all, we're going to vote on this, and then I'm going to pray about it, and then we're going to solve it. No, the um, I read a very interesting Twitter thread uh, the other night about somebody who chronicled their like two day event. Uh, of this whole thing and the guy had a couple of businesses and and it was it was just heart wrenching but i got to say at the end of it at the end of it it came it got to be like saturday morning and he said so i decided to go out and play with my kids and and this this guy literally was thinking i'm losing millions of dollars and three of my businesses are going to get crushed by the weight of the 800 pound gorilla but he had he had the wherewithal to just, he's like, I decided I was just going to go play with my kids and enjoy a little life. And I was like, such a great story. Anyway, that's it. That's all I was going to say.
0: All right, Jason, let's go. That
1: was brilliant. Douglas Carmichael writes in, do you think we'll see a lot of production companies go out of business because of the crisis? Go ahead, Courtney.
3: Uh, I doubt it. It's mainly a lack of uh, liquidity that this is a major glitch in. And, and, and the fact that the FDIC stepped in and and said that they were going to uh, make access to all the funds of all insured and even uninsured uh, depositors in SVB is is going to avoid the problem of not being able to meet payroll. And a lot of the big, you know, most of the most production companies handle payroll uh, through pay, big payroll companies, uh, cast and crew, and, and the major payroll companies. And so I'm sure they will not have a problem because of all the. Uh, Money that they're holding for all the different production companies in their bank. So I don't think it's going to be a problem. Uh, they will be able to uh, cash in or at least have access to that money in the meantime through the FDIC insurance program. And there are ways, uh, even though there's a $250,000 limit on FDIC insurance for individual depositors, um, there are ways uh, if you're using a single bank to stratify that investment even if you're putting in 10 million or something like that to divide it up and many banks offer the ability to generate multiple accounts so that that larger amount can be insured. So uh, there are ways around that. I don't know if SVB had that kind of uh, 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 offer in place for its investors but possibly not. That may be what caused the problem where 95% of its uh,
4: depositors were uninsured. Alex? Yeah, nobody's going under business out of business right now, but it's a good lesson for us to pay attention to. <laughs> like, you know, what we want to do is the best thing about a close call is for everyone to go, wow, that was close. Um, you know, there's a thing called a crow funeral. Uh, it's tr- it's a real thing. If a crow dies, a whole bunch of crows will cl- collect around it and make a whole lot of noise. I've seen a couple of these crow funerals. And they'll just all, and what they're, what as best we can tell, they're imprinting the all the environmental things around that crow to try to figure out how not to die. <laughs> you know, and so And so when we see something like this, what we wanna do is is wrap around it, look at it, look at what we should be doing differently, look at, you know, it's hard to control what the world's going to do, but what can we do? Can we, you know, it's one of the reasons that again, I owned when I had gear, I owned a lot of gear because I knew that no matter what happened with my cash flow, I could still show up at an event and do it. <laughs> so so it's, you know, it's it's uh, if I had rental, I was in a I I'd get into a bind on cash flow issues. And so so you want to think about where you're diversifying your cash, you know, what you can and can't do without without that cash or without, you know, um liquidity. And and it's it's a good opportunity. And that's why we're talking about today is we want to th- look at what happened and look at how we as produce production people can you know, ensure that event because rare things rarely happen in a vacuum, and it's rarely like they'll never happen again. People tell us that, but uh, it's usually a good idea to you know plan uh, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the worst,
0: Nigel.
10: I think this is a perfect time to go back and look at your payment terms and make sure that you are being paid appropriate to the work you're doing and that you are not leaving a lot of money out. because I will tell you the concern for lots of small businesses here will be, Accounts receivable will grow because people will use this as a reason and large companies in particular may use this as a reason to delay payments a certain amount of period of time. And well, you can say, well, I'll never work with them again, Uh, cash is uh, an important thing and uh, cash flow is an important thing, as Alex just said. So go back to your payment terms, be really clear about how they operate. Don't just gloss over them because this is one of the sort of side things that will happen to people in the next few weeks.
8: And Chris? You know, Alex, you mentioned the, would you call it a crow funeral? Yeah. Down the block from my house, we would drive by this neighbor's house and on multiple occasions, we saw what could only look like crow church. And I stopped and took, got got out to try and take a picture one day. And it turned out um, it was this weird sculpture thing that somebody had set up in the front. These were fake birds. <laughs> <laughs> i had seen it my wife had seen it, she goes did you see the crow church i've seen crow church we- weirdest thing ever
1: next question uh harshie Trevetti writes in s corp c corp llc so many decisions however which bank do you select in the this process do you say write a check out to how does one get paid these days
0: go ahead alex
4: yeah that I don't know if we can get into how to choose a bank and you know there's there's a whole second hour on uh corporation formation which we could probably do on a Monday at some point at Liberty's uh if if she's interested in that um but but how to form that thing but I again uh, I know that everybody has a, a different reason for the how, why they chose the bank. For SVB, a lot of it is because their investors told them that that's where the money's going to go. You know, like they're not they're not asking, they're saying, I'm gonna give you $10 million, I'm gonna put it in SVB for you. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not, a, you know, cause it's it's a system that they know, they know that they're gonna have the services and they're used to doing it, it's a, it's a relational thing. And so uh, I, as a small company was in, again, a big a big bank, Bank of America, um, which I didn't necessarily enjoy, but it was stable, you know, and it and it uh, and it, it did what they needed to do, and you didn't ever feel like something was going to go sideways.
0: And just to answer your your question, Hersheed when deciding what bank to go to, you look at their products, you look at their products in relation to your business, your services, and if it's on the personal side, how that impacts you. Um, looking at how close they are, like proximities, do you want to go with a local bank, um, building relationship relationships with some of the people on staff, because you know, in the X number of years, you're looking to um, have a loan and then building relationship and credibility so that when it comes time for them to decide what kind of rates or what you can get. So there are a lot of factors that go into deciding what bank you want to go with and just, just like, that. That's the quick snapshot um, response to that. Jason? Um, and
1: just to be clear, Hashid, um, it, um, it wasn't clear to me when I read the question whether or not you're asking, is there a difference between making a checkout to Hashid Trivedi LLC, Hashid Trivedi Inc., um, or is it okay to just make it out to you? Is that what you were getting at?
0: And Hashid,
4: feel free to yes. jump in. All, so- uh, sorry, right? Uh, yeah, Getting a little off off subject. <laughs> well, the
9: reason program. why is the reason why I was asking about the bank corporations and stuff because that is a li- like LLC is a liability thing. So you're like, okay, let me go to the small bank or the big bank or specialty bank like SPV. And when you invest in stuff like that, and then do we still do the writing out to a check too, when we get paid? So that whole process of where does the money go, you know, as a, as a freelancer, you might be an S Corp, and you're getting paid, but your money's in SPB. So
4: we we'd probably need to, that's probably a whole separate second hour. <laughs> where, where the money go? Cool.
9: Yep.
0: Next question.
1: Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, why is or was the FDIC account insurance limited in its coverage? Currently a quarter million dollars, I believe.
6: Yes, go ahead, John. Yeah, the government always responds to something that happened in the past. In this case, the current limits are responding to, like Alex said, the consumer um, actions where consumers were pulling all their money out of banks and most consumers don't have $250,000 in the bank. So there's really a backstop to prevent your average consumer your 300 million americans from pulling their money out of the banks and i don't think anyone
4: foresaw this happening on the corporate level alex safety creates bad behavior like <laughs> so, so that, that's that's why you don't you know by putting but when you insure the more you insure the more risk people will take and so the reason that they keep this in the hard part this is the hard part of what we're doing now by bailing everybody out is that we are making it safe? Everyone now assumes, after two thousand eight, they made the initial assumption with this, which has turned out to be true. Is that everybody's too too big to fail, and so we're going to constantly, you know, back it up? But what that will create is risk taking. And so, um, because you go well, I, I know that it'll always be safe to do it. And one of the big things that makes, you know, the semi-capitalistic system that we do, which isn't really capitalistic, mostly socialistic, but we kind of call it capitalism, is that we. You know, when we create, the idea is the check and balance of risk-taking is loss. And if we take all the loss away, we end up with a lot of risk-taking. And eventually that, you know, we see what happened in 2008 was a lot of risk-taking based on what, what felt like safety. Um, and so, so, we have to be very careful of it. That, but that's why they limit what that number is, is so that you don't start doing crazy things with the money. Um, and <laughs> it still wasn't enough. Uh, so, but that, that sense of safety cr- creates bad behaviors. Courtney? Yeah, it's created
3: for security to attract uh, investors or people to put their money into the bank, as opposed to you know hiding it under their mattress or giving it to Uncle Bob to keep somewhere. Uh, it's uh, it's an incentive. People can feel safe if they know. And most most depositors, beyond corporate investors, uh, aren't putting more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in cash into a bank. So um, they feel pretty safe in their money. And after the runs on the banks in the 20s and in 2008, that was up from $100,000 once the FDIC was uh, formed. It used to be just $100,000. And so banks would advertise, you know, your deposits are insured by the federal government up to $100,000. Well, after 2008, it went to $250,000 because a lot of people were way beyond that $100,000 in investments and savings and, you know, the various uh, accounts that you would have at a single bank. So they upped it to, to 250,000 and it's to encourage uh, the banks to stay in business and not have people pull their money out of banks and go to Bitcoin or something other
6: than a structured bank. John? I'm not positive this is the case, but I believe the reason why the FDIC is just insuring the deposits is they want to enable the bank to continue to fail because the stockholders and bank management are not protected with this. I think the hope is that uh, people will keep their money and it gives the opportunity for the bank itself
4: to fail. And Alex? And and again, uh, the, the, to, to make it crystal clear, the one of the big advantages of a quarter million dollars is that the vast majority of consumers are not going to make a run on the bank. Like if they know, that this, it's not only will they they feel secure to put the money in the bank, but they know that no matter what, if they don't go over a quarter million dollars, that there's no reason for them to call their banker when they see some problem with the bank because they're gonna be covered. And so they don't think about it, they don't move. And that panic that we saw here was related to the fact that there was a lot of people over that quarter million dollars. So if we said the FDIC automatically insures everyone, um, then, then you would end up with, with, the panic wouldn't have occurred. The problem with that is again, people take, uh, uh, people take risks at that point, and the And, and to, to get rid of those risks, what you have to do is now the government has to protect itself. When it says that I'm gonna back up everything, I have to protect myself, which is a lot more regulation, which makes it a lot harder for regional banks to survive, which makes it, and they, then they have to add a lot more rules and so when you add all it's all it's easy to say we should just regulate the heck out of the banks but when you do that it makes it harder for them to lend to average people and to individuals because they have all this regulation about what they can and can't do and then and if you wonder why you can't get your next loan for your credit card or your bank or whatever it's because of the regulations that are there they would love to give you that loan but there's regulations there and if they and the more they back the more regulations they're going to have to have because otherwise it could You know, it's a lot of money that's floating around. It could, you know, it can, the contagion could be very
8: expensive to the taxpayer if you go down that path. And Chris? Prado just sent me this. It's a list of uh, failed banks by the FDIC. I think it's important to notice here that um, although Signature Bank today and Silicon Bank last week uh, were uh, failed or whatever, taken over, Previous to that, there was four banks in 2020, and then going back to 2019 and 2017. This, this doesn't happen a lot. I don't think there's a whole lot of you know, need for crazy panic.
0: Next question.
1: Speaking of which, Peter Belbin in Houston writes in, how does SVB's situation compare with that of Signature Bank, which has also become a casualty over the weekend?
4: Alex? My understanding I haven't paid as much attention to signature bank, but I think my understanding is they were in a very similar boat, which is they got themselves, you know, kind of over their skis when it comes to where they were putting in investments. And this is this is where, again, your you have banks essentially trying to maximize their profits by taking long-term plays against short-term deposits. And if those and that works great, and it's great for the shareholders and it generates profits and everything else, as long as the shareholders don't panic. And it even works out okay if if they just, if the shareholders just leave their money in there, these banks can can make that happen. The problem is, is that if they suddenly constrict, um, in, in, in both of these cases, in SVP, SVB, from my understanding, is that you just have the market for raising money constricted. And so, that co- that also meant that more more of the startups were not getting the next 20 million, the next 50 million. They were needed to work with the money that they had. So they started pulling more and more resources out of it after a huge wave. I think they tripled in size during COVID because there was so much investment in new technologies. Um, But then it's, you know, as often happens, things slow down in Silicon Valley and um, and then people start just using the money that they had. And that, that increased draw is what started to create this kind of chain reaction.
0: Next question.
1: Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. writes in, while probably not intentional, do you think the crypto debacles have been allowed to proceed to burn up a lot of the extra money dumped into the system from the 2008 COVID stimuli, perhaps in a failed attempt to head off this type of event? Alex?
4: I don't think. I think they had their own. <laughs> crypto had its own right? issues that, that I don't think were necessarily connected to uh uh, they're, very, uh, yeah, they're very speculative right now because they're kind of the wild, wild west. And so, I don't think that the crypto debacle, I, the problem is is that the crypto debacle really is much closer to the pure capitalism where it just, you live and die by what, you, what you're doing. There's no, there's no government intervention, but there's also no government protection.
0: And I don't remember what the stable one is right now in crypto, but there is conversation of what's happening now with SB and how that will impact them. So it'll be interesting to see in like the next week or so what we do see on on that end of things while crypto is not necessarily directly impacting this case, but it will be um, it will be the reverse Nigel.
10: Yeah, uh, the only thing to add to the crypto is if, I think if you went back a few thousand years and looked at the first use of money, you would see a fraud and you'd see confusion and you'd see people losing money, losing value and stuff. So crypto is very, like cash was, I don't know, five ten thousand 10,000 years ago, whenever it came out. So you're going to see these massive changes as people work it out. I think there are there are a set of issues for a government which can control and print money when it can't control and print crypto. And so there, there is a set of friction and there is a set of uh, dynamics going on there that will change the way some of this works. Those of us, I dabble a little bit just to play, and suddenly my, point, my Coinbase account required me to declare it on my taxes. So you are going to see some of the assumptions around crypto uh, really butt up against some of this stuff, but I don't think that was an issue here.
4: And Alex? And just to build off of what Nigel said, is is there, as Americans we you know not, not everyone who's watching is American. As Americans, we have an incredible luxury that we have the the um, the, the the dollar that everybody uses for the the base uh, you know of everything, and so we can do a lot of things that other other countries can't. It's not just that things go up and down ten thousand years ago or five thousand years ago. In many parts of the world, uh, the money valuation you know goes up and down by huge numbers. Uh, relatively often. So it's something that is um it, it's not new to new to crypto. It's it's just new to something that isn't the um the f- fiat uh, currency.
1: Next question. Marco DeAndrade from Lacombe Alberta, Canada writes in: Do you think the Fed will continue raising the rates in the short term? Will SMB's businesses change their mindsets on expected economic growth as the result of this event?
6: Go ahead, John. I think they'll in some ways have to continue to raise rates because by backstopping these uh, bank failures they're essentially injecting more cash into the system and increasing the supply decreases the cost and that's going to lower the cost of capital. In general small and medium-sized business, businesses should be assuming that the cost of capital will not remain at zero as long as we are dealing with high inflation still from the last couple of years.
0: And Alex?
4: Yeah, they're gonna have to keep on increasing those interest rates because the inflation is so high. Inflation is the worst tax because it not only taxes your income, it taxes your savings. And it is a permanent tax. It is literally the worst If you wonder why some people are freaked out about inflation and some people say it 's not a big deal. people who say it 's not a big deal don 't have any savings you know they don 't have anything you know that 's there and and you know and they can just change that you know but but it is a you know we 've applied a twenty percent over the last couple of years a twenty percent tax on what people saved for their retirement like it is an incredible problem that the are, that the Fed has to fix, and so yes, interest rates are going to keep on going up because they have to fix. We are bleeding out. Like, you know, like that's the... I mean, people's savings is bleeding out right now and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to apply pressure to keep it from getting any worse than it already is.
0: And Chris?
8: To put that comment into perspective, my father, who passed away in 2006, always told uh, the boys, uh, my brothers and I, uh, you'll never have to worry about your mother. There's no way that she could spend all the money. What my dad did not take into consideration... Number one is that my mother would live, so far, 16 years longer, 17 years longer than my dad. And also, he had no idea that a gallon of gasoline would ever get to be $7 and a dozen eggs would be $12 or whatever they are now or were. So th- talking about inflation being something that you know really hits you at both ends, uh, my mother is... Is, is out of money, you know? My dad never envisioned the world that my mother is currently living in.
0: Which is why this conversation is so important and happy that we're able to have this today. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael writes in, how would the European Commission be monitoring the crisis and what actions might the EU take in response?
0: Nigel?
10: So the EU is a competitor for uh, the US, uh, I know it doesn't probably sound like it, but they are. And uh, so they will be doing two things. They will be doing a lot of nothing, but making sound fury, signifying nothing. But they will also be looking to see what they can do to strengthen the bank uh, um, issues within Europe and then between the Europe and the US. So you're, you're going to see a lot of action. I don't know it will amount to anything, but but they do view the issues around contagion and competition as something they have to keep an eye on.
0: Next
1: question. Joe Kidd from the Bay Area writes in, While decreasing tax revenues in the trillions of dollars and increasing spending, did the untoward, undue, and unprecedented pressure on the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank to irrationally hold prime rates exacerbate SVB's liquidity crisis? Go ahead, John.
6: The Fed is an independent organization. Now I think it's arguable that decreasing tax revenues and increasing spending could increase inflation because you're basically leaving money in the system, tax takes money out of the system and spending puts money into the system. Um, I think that's different than this particular crisis. My personal opinion is this particular crisis was um, with low cost of capital, large businesses grew faster than they should have and the bank wasn't set to um,
4: guard against that. Alex? And again, I mean, we can talk, that's a whole other good discussion. It's probably too political for us to get into um in, in too deep uh, in, into that process. But what happened here was that the bank did the wrong thing. <laughs> like, like, you know, it, it, we can talk, there's a lot of other things that, that are swirling around. But uh, again, talking to folks that are in banks, they were like, this was an obvious thing. Like anybody could have looked at the books and said, you are leveraged. And as soon as we started talking about increasing interest rates, this should have been a giant, a giant on the top of a building swinging a red flag over every, any bank that was doing uh, long-term treasuries. When as soon as the Fed started to increase the, it didn't matter how. I mean, they've been doing this over years, not over. This is why the Fed doesn't just go to four percent. You know, it, you know, they they start eking it up, so people can start making adjustments. And while it did do it faster than any other time in forty years, this is something that you know the it came down to the bank made bad choices that could have been seen. And, and uh, you know, everybody can get away with all kinds of bad behavior when, things are, when, when it's sunny. <laughs> when it rains, you figure out who had, who had uh, rain gear and who didn't.
0: Jason?
1: Yeah, to, to, um, to reiterate that point, the chairman did not cause this problem. The Federal Reserve Bank did not cause this problem. The prime rates directly did not cause this problem. Only the bank caused this problem.
0: And John?
6: I think it's important to remember this bank, not only was it highly leveraged in maybe a way that wasn't sustainable, it also wasn't diversified. All of its assets were essentially in uh, tech companies and tech businesses. So when those struggled over the last few months, that made things even worse.
4: And Alex... And as a victim of someone with a multi, I lost my company because I wasn't diversified. So this is what happens when you get into a monoculture. You know, while I thought that I worked with lots of big companies and so I'm, I was okay, they were all using one streaming platform. <laughs> so when that streaming platform shifted, I, you know, what I thought was diversification be, suddenly became. It was clear that it was all dependent on one thing. So one thing that we can walk away from, and I think John made a great point of that of that monoculture that was created. Is that um, as a business, one thing to learn is that monocultures are not good for you, <laughs> like you know and and so you want to be looking for clients and one of the things the mistakes that I made uh, as a company was uh, that i that I didn 't do any advertising or marketing because I had so much work, I was like, well, what am I going to do with more marketing? What am I going to do with more work? Well, what it meant was I could have diversified, I could have picked picked and choose other clients to start um, you know, doing things with, as opposed to just taking in what came in, which if you only take in what comes in, you, you can very quickly end up in a monoculture because someone just fills up your entire pipe. So, it is, it is an important thing. And, and the last thing I wanted to show here before we, before we jump away is um, Crow Funeral. <laughs> you thought I was making it up. There it is, I just searched Crow Funeral. There it is, a dead crow and a bunch of crows trying to figure out what happened.
0: Well, thank you so much to our producers for your phenomenal questions as we, this was like breaking news. We switched the topic today just so that we could have this conversation. Um, So let us know in second hours what has spawned and sparked for you so that we can continue this dialogue and to our panelists, thank you for your contribution and of most importantly to our back end team for without which this would not be possible. And just touching on the rest of the week, tomorrow, we've got Alan Hawks, and he'll be our second hour. And if you want to see the rest of the schedule, head over to officehours.global. And we can't forget the Taluk traversal. We've gone 33 Three thousand nine hundred and seventy-two thousand miles. That's 54,672 54, kilometers. That's more than 307 million bananas. Thank you so much. And we'll see you in after hours. Bye. Apologies if I butchered anyone's names. Congrats on reading today, Jason. Thank you so much. Yes, that's a great topic. It's
1: fiscal policy; just really gets my blood pumping. Economics
4: is like my my second life. My favorite sport. <laughs> exactly. Let's just start another podcast where all we talk about is macroeconomics. Sounds great.
1: That's what he said to say about it. Macroeconomics. Financial history. Macaroni. Macroeconomics and cheese. Macaroni, Macaroni economics. economics. There it is. <laughs> Bye.